The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. I named the space play on the tweet I put out just yesterday. It went a little bit viral. But we're going to be doing a lot more than talk about Airbnb. But Mike, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved, interested in the data analytics side of housing? And what are you doing currently? Sure. So my name is Mike Simonson. I am the founder, president of a company called Altos Research. And we track the housing market. We track every week. We track every home for sale in the country. All the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data. And then we publish out the analytics for, you know, people who care about such things. So, you know, we have uh, tens of thousands of real estate agents who use our data every day. We have big financial firms, all the players in the industry, people, investors and lenders and home builders, anybody who has exposure to the U.S. real estate market. And so we track everything every week. Most housing data is lagging by several months by the time it gets to you. And so, you know, like it's why the headlines are so often wrong because the market has changed before the data gets through that. And so we track everything every week and, and track it by Friday and publish it out on Monday morning. I've been doing it for, we've been doing this company for 17 years. I'm a longtime Silicon Valley data guy, but 17 years ago, we left our jobs and started Altos Research. How fragmented are those data points that you put together, recognizing the lag part of it. I got to assume there's a lot of you know, piping that goes into the types of data you're putting out. Yes. Yeah, so the way housing data traditionally works is like, you know, housing houses on the market now, it gets an offer in September, that deal closes in October or maybe November. And then you typically start hearing about it in November or December, you know, where the prices changed or where they closed. But if you look, like you could see right now where that house is priced, where it's going to close, how much under or overbidding is going on. Like you can see all of that stuff in the data right now. And so, but traditional, like literally it's like it's August and you're going to be hearing about these sales in November. And if you're using something like the Case Shiller Index, you're like, you're, that's like November, December, January that you're starting to hear about the stuff that we can see right now in the data. And so, what we do is, like I said, we check every home for sale in the country every week. And, and so our data goes down to zip code level and inside the zip codes, it's like condos behave differently from single family homes and high end. So we do four price range segments in every zip code in the country. The high end of the market may be behaving differently from the low end. And then we bubble up all that analytics. So it gives us a really, you know, like any zip code in the country can tell you exactly what's happening right now or, you know, or 
metro or national or, you know, regional or state, all the, all that view. Yeah, since you mentioned the differential between the high end and the low ends, it's been, I think, correctly noted that higher mortgage rates only matter for those that can't afford using cash. Right? And if you have cash to pay for a house, then you're probably more on the high end side of things. How have mortgage rates impacted the two different sides of pricing when it comes to housing? So I'm not sure that assumption is true that cash buyers only buy expensive homes. You know, we have we have seen in the last year, though, obviously, as mortgage rates have gone up, portability like has decreased and that's slowed purchase rate, purchase demand across all price points. If you look at the places where homes move fastest, where the demand is greatest, it gets pretty obvious where the sweet spot for Americans is right about 400 grand. And that those are the homes that people want to buy. And those are the ones that are still move the fastest. And so it's a little at the ultra high end. It's like th- there's a little more volatility in prices. So it can be hard to know, like, you know, in the multi-million dollar homes, like yeah, are those prices down. It really, you know, depends on the property and the, and the, the local market and things like that across the country. So. But you can see, and you can see it picking up any area that like, you know, typical home right now is about, takes about 45 days to, to sell. That is ticking up, but it always ticks up at the second half of the year. It's taking longer than during the pandemic craziness, which when it was down like, you know, 14 or 21 days, something like that, because people were buying homes immediately as soon as they hit the market. And so that's slowed across all price points. And, and what's sort of the historical range of those days to sell? You know, where are we relative to other sites? Yeah, so we are still lower than normal. And we're lower, fewer, you're faster to sell than normal. Normal, you know, call it last decade. It'd be like a couple of months, you know, 60 days, and we're at 45 kind of thing right now. And the, you know, that's really a function of the fact that we have, Super tight inventory show, very few selection, very little selection. We have had all year more buyers than sellers. So we've had inventory falling all year. And, you know, that was a like super surprise when if you, based on where we started the year, like buyers adjusted to the mortgage rates. And so they were buying more. And so that things like inventory fell, days on market stayed lower. All of those things were way lower than we expected, you know, coming in the beginning of the year based on how cold the fourth quarter was last year. So so I'm trying to think of this in terms of, you know, uh, almost like an equity type of framework. So in equities, you have small caps, mid caps, large caps. In housing, you're going to low end, you know, the sweet spot you mentioned, 400K and then high end. On that inventory dynamic, where is it worst in terms of, you know, that kind of small, mid, large framework? That's a, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a, a, like a specific answer. Where is inventory like by price range, but you can see it by geography. So the Western U.S. markets were the biggest boom markets during the pandemic. Austin and Boise and Salt Lake and Phoenix. And, you know, those markets were the, the absolute boom markets during the pandemic. And they were the fastest to slow last year. And so inventory built. And, you know, this was a combination of inbound migration that then slowed when rates went and, you know, post-pandemic return to the office and so suddenly, you know, like those kind of things, all those pandemic forces slowed way down last year. And, and so you could see 
things like days of market climbing and inventory climbing and things like percentage of homes that have to take a price cut climbed way up last year from record few to like high levels. And so you can see that in places like Austin and Phoenix. And those markets were covered substantially this spring. And you can see like right now, and the last few weeks, his mortgage rates have like gone from upper sixes to in the, you know, seven and a quarter kind of thing. You can see the slowdown. You can really see it in like Austin ticking back up again. And so you can see that in inventory, to your question on inventory is like, where are the homes for sale? Austin is like one of the very few places where there are more homes for sale now than there were in 2019 at this time. Almost everywhere else in the country, there's fewer homes for sale. And places in the Midwest and Northeast, there's dramatically fewer homes for sale than normal. It's still at pandemic lows, like never came off the record lows of the bottom of the pandemic in places like, you know, Connecticut and, you know, the Midwest and the Northeast, where they, where there was a lot more inventory that rose in, in, uh, you know, in the West. And last year, Boise led the curve. This year, it's really Austin that is slowing the fastest where inventory is built the most and and Austin leads with the most price reductions right now in any market around. So it's actually, I think a transition to why I named the space the way I named it and the tweet that I put out, which was basically a response to Amy Nixon's post who I had on one of these spaces before. So I shared it and asked at this point that she made about, yeah, there's whatever, 3,300 homes for sale in Austin and there's 12,000 Airbnbs in Austin. So her argument, which I think has some validity is it's not so much of a housing inventory issue as much as it is a ownership and use of home issue because of the Airbnb dynamic. I'm curious just to hear your sort of your thoughts on how the broader trend toward buying a property is to rent them out through Airbnb type of distribution platforms. How has that maybe permanently impacted the state of housing? So I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to the, you know, the hypothesis that Airbnb like is at fault, but Airbnb is pretty minor. I would scope it bigger than that. Here's what we have. For the last decade or more, every year we have fewer homes on the market. We have fewer and fewer homes on the market. And we've had dramatically low interest rates. It's been a tremendous decade to own real estate. And, and so we own it. And so we own more and every year we own more. And so that may be, that may be, I am buying my first house because it's a good time to do it. Or maybe it's, I'm owning Airbnbs or maybe I'm owning investment properties in general. And really it's investment properties in general. So, you know, we've taken 10 million or so homes out of the resale cycle and made them investment properties. And a lot of times it's like, you know, we either want to blame Airbnb or we want to blame BlackRock or we want to blame, you know, one of these big, you know, big nefarious corporations. But in reality, we have 94% of investment properties are owned by individuals who own like one, two, three doors. And it's like 94%. And they do so because, like I said, it's been a really good decade for them to do so. All of our laws, all of our policy, all of our fiscal and monetary, all of our tax policy is all designed to favor owning your house, like to financially protect the home owner. 
And so we own. And so we have, therefore, had fewer and fewer homes for sale. Airbnb is, in my view, there's a tiny element of that. It's it. I think you could look at Austin. By the way, I would caution to use Austin as a like, oh, look, there's some wacky stat in Austin. Therefore, the housing market is going to crash. It's like, hey, let me cherry pick the slowest market in the country right now and then draw big conclusions of it. I think it's bad, like bad logic. But, but I would say that like, you know, the, in this country, we, we are all designed to favor the owner, all of the laws. And so we own. And, and so like Airbnb is like, you know, because money's been so cheap and then you can, it's an easy way to add revenue to that home. Like it's been a, a, like a, it's a factor in why we own more homes now. Fewer people own more homes, but it's, it's hard for me to draw that as like the cause. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I think it's more just a, a function of narrative. I mean, to the extent that it's been a, it, just like every industry I'd argue is becoming more and more of an oligopoly, right? It's Pareto principle on steroids. And if that dynamic continues in housing because of the re-leveraging aspect of housing, you know, then it's true. You end up having a renter nation regardless. Well, I mean. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yes, no, I like, you know, we have empowered, like our homeowners are in really strong financial shape. American homeowners are really strong financial shape. So, you know, what we've done is change the affordability for younger people. And we have some real challenges there. But, but like most of the country is like, like we made all the things really good for that, that class of people. And so they're in really good shape. All right. So let's talk about kind of the current data that you're seeing that you're putting across that's, you know, not as lagged. Especially now that to your point, mortgage yeah. rates are you know, picking back up because yields are rising and, you know, pretty aggressively on the 30 year side. Where are we out there? I mean, you know, are we in a dynamic where housing prices, you know, keep on rising broadly, but maybe after inflation, it's not so much of an inflation hedge going forward, or do we see some outright declines and I'm sure nuances within that? So we see the year 2023 has been surprisingly strong for home prices. You know, we, a year ago, we could see a little more than a year ago, 16 months ago, you could see that like home prices were going to be flat to down in by mid-2023, that's where they came through. But this year, because we've had more buyers and sellers, they put a floor on pricing. And so they were buying things and eating up inventory. So inventory fell during the year. So right now, there are 496,000 single-family homes on the market around the country. That's the first week since New Year's, like the highest inventory, like the first time this week since since New Year's, we have more inventory than we started the year with. So inventory has been falling all year long. It's finally inching back up. And so we have 
you know, 50% fewer homes on the market than we did in 2019. We have 10% fewer homes than we did on the market last year at this time. And so those things like on the supply side of the supply demand equation bode well for home prices. Home prices took a big leg down in September and October last year. So if you remember, there was a spike in mortgage rates at that point. They went from like, you know, close to six, all of a sudden six and a half and seven and a half in, in a few weeks. And that really slowed things down. So last year, inventory of homes climbed September and October, which was super unusual, like because they'd already crested for the year, inventory had already crested for the year. So, and then, so demand stopped cold, inventory rose in the fourth quarter and, and prices, especially sales prices ticked down in the fourth quarter. So by the, this year in September and October, the year of year comparison is going to get easier. So we will likely end home prices will end up this year by a few percent. And these are not inflation adjusted numbers. We like, we track everything. We go, these are the numbers and you can, you know, do adjustments after that. But so they'll likely end this year up a few percent because the home, there's a floor on home prices now and, and, and have been inching up all year. And they, and the year over year comparisons get super easy by the end of the year. So then next year, we can see that, that the factors to pay attention to is if rates go up from here, go to 8%, consumers are really responsive to that. And they are, they'll be, they'll back off. Inventory will climb. We'll have fewer transactions. And likely then you could see home prices will have to adjust down. Not a crash and see crash anywhere in the data, anywhere in the data. But then on the other hand, if rates inch back down, like below seven, just closer to six in that range, then you'll see inventory fall. You'll see more transactions happen and you'll see price pressure heading up. So, you know, there is no signal anywhere in the data of a big surge in home prices. There is no signal anywhere in the data of a crash in home prices, certainly not like it looked last year at this time or, you know, last year in May, where you could see price cuts like flowing in, like, you know, the more price cuts each week, really dramatically increasing rate. That's not happening right now. Price cuts are inching up right now with mortgage rates, meaning there's slightly fewer buyers, which so there's slightly fewer offers so that if your house is on the market, you got slightly more of them are taking are cutting their price to spur demand. So you can see it slowing just a little bit from the surprisingly strong first half of the year. But that's what the scenario plays out for prices next year. What would it take for inventory to not inch up, but just sort of really accelerate? I mean, is it just a function of you need to have recession, you need to have increased unemployment, or is there some other external factor that needs to kick in? So there is, I think... So we would call it the Altos rule of inventory. So the main thing about inventory, and it's a common misconception that, you know, as soon as rates fall again, we'll get more inventory. The data shows it's actually the opposite is true. So it's when rates rise, inventory rises. When rates fall, inventory falls. And it's a really a function of holding costs. So, you know, when rates are higher, costs more to hold my real estate. I sell some of it. I, when I buy the next one, I don't keep the first one. I have to resell the first one to finance the next one. There's all those kind of reasons. And conversely, when, when rates fall, that spurs demand, but not that much supply. So inventory falls. So the first thing is more inventory requires higher rates, higher for longer. 
to get back to like normally this time of year, you would you could expect a million homes, single family homes on the market in August. And there's under 500,000 right now. In 2015, there's like a million two. So, you know, there's dramatically fewer homes. So, it, but it took us a decade to get down to these levels, a decade of really low rate. So you can imagine multiple years of higher rates getting us back, inching back up higher, closer to the old normal level of inventory. So that's one, you know, rate direction. If rates go up, inventory will go up. There are other places where you might see inventory come from. You know, you might see job loss recession. And you lose your job and then you can't make your mortgage, right? So then you gotta, you have to put the house in the market. The thing to think to keep in mind with job loss recession is that it really takes a year at the earliest for the inventory to come after the job losses are here, right? So we're still at record employment right now. So let's say recession hits hard in the fourth quarter and start losing jobs in, you know, 20 in 2024. It's really 2025 inventory or later that would come right after the hard job loss recession. So that's another, you know, year and a half away. Assuming we get the job loss recession first, we have, you could imagine in a different rate environment and you get a, and you get a combination of things where like investors or like the Airbnb bus, like Amy's like Airbnb, Airbnb bus, whatever her, ter- her term is. You can imagine that, like that hypothesis of these people are going to be selling their homes when it no longer pencils. They're not, no, they're no longer making revenue. So I think the key to remember there is there's a lot of people with those fears about the housing market. The key to remember right now is there is no signal anywhere in the data of any of those folks selling properties. Like, the, you know, so the hypothesis is that this is where inventory could come from. But it ain't here yet. And that's also why we track, track the inventory every week, right? We, we can know exactly when they start selling their homes, but none of them are. And so at some point, you know, maybe that changes us. You know, on the other hand, like think about investors this year. We, this time last year, we were like wondering, okay, market slows. Do investors, single family home investors, big and small, right? Most of the investors are individuals. They're like, you know, 94% of real estate investors are individuals. And, but, but big money and small money. We were saying last year at this time, like, okay, do investors panic now and sell and exacerbate the downturn? Or do they sit there and they say, like, as now I see opportunity for the first time in years, I don't have competition and I'm going to buy when all of a sudden my cap rate looks good, rates, home prices tick down enough, my cap rate looks good, I'm going to buy. So we didn't know what was going to happen last year. Like, were investors going to help put a floor on pricing or were they going to, were they going to exacerbate the downturn? And it turned out this year they put a floor on pricing. Like there was, a, there's enough cash sitting on the sidelines that like, you know, in Phoenix, prices tick down and there's enough people who want to be investors in Phoenix. They're like, I'll take that. And they started buying homes really quickly. So, you know, home prices adjusted down a little bit. Investors and investors stopped having to compete as hard, the ones who had cash. And so they went and bought homes. And so that put a floor on prices very quickly this year. And so, you know, the other side of the hypothesis is that, you know, like we have that, you know, the Airbnb bust hypothesis, which says like, oh, these people are screwed. They're over leveraged. There's too many of them. 
And as soon as the economy turns, they're going to have to sell. What the other side is that like, as soon as the economy turns, like finally there's going to be some selection for buyers who've been competing and priced out and messed up and for years, right? So at least that's how it played out this year. Because that, you know, that like, if you had a really bearish, people have had bearish calls on housing for multiple years, right? It like it looks crazy. The prices went up in the pandemic. If you look at just the price curve, it sure is easy to look at that and go. There has to be a regression to mean prices have to adjust. Like it's really, you know, at first glance, it's like, you know, the air quotes, it has to happen. It's really easy conclusion to get to. And so then we were watching like, okay, well, when's it coming? And so, you know, that's why this year played out with such a surprise, right? Because, you know, home buyers, they bought more homes and then were for sale. I wonder how much of that. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. It's just because of animal spirits and a spillover from the equity market, right? So there, there is an argument I've heard, which I myself also think has some merit, that part of the reason it's been surprising there's been a reacceleration of housing is because there's been a reacceleration in, you know, people's investment portfolios, at least in terms of their large cap allocations. Yeah, it sure does seem like they are tight and correlated. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't study money flows or, you know, like we track the housing market, right? And so, you know, we track the housing market through the you know downturn. And we could see that the Altos number turned the in the great financial crisis the same week as the S&P 500 bottomed in whatever it was, 2010. Like it was, it was really precise. And so, and so you can see that, like, I, I could imagine that, you know, yep, people bought houses this year because everybody's employed and the companies like are, are you know, salaries are going up and, you know, and oh, by the way, I'm, you know, a 36 year old millennial and I've been unable to buy in the last couple of years because there's so much competition and now I can buy. Like, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes here, please make sure you follow Mike Simonson here on X. And if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left micro request button. And as always, this will be in podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Let's talk about home builders. Home builders, at least the stocks, have done particularly well this year, completely diverged from lumber to my chagrin. I often talk about lumber because of linked to housing starts and construction. How have home builders been responding this year? And are you noticing kind of any interesting changes that could be happening industry wide for next year? Yeah. So, I mean, home builders are the biggest surprise. For me. I mean, like, I, it's a surprise for the year. Like, we're coming to the year going, oh, my, you know, man, like, coming to the beginning of the year, it was like the fourth quarter was so cold. Inventory rose in October, late October last year. And that looked like it would continue. And then we expected, you know, a recession would hit sometime this year. And so like I was expecting that we'd have growing available inventory of resale homes all year long. But because we that didn't happen, the opposite happened. We like and inventory fell of resale homes. The home builders were in dramatic direct benefit 
of that demand. And, you know, it's a weird thing to say. People have a hard time wrapping their head around it, but we had more buyers than sellers for homes all year long for our pricing. So, and home builders had a nice little pile of inventory post pandemic supply chain inventory became available and they sold a bunch of houses. And it was a really great opportunity for them. The other thing that home builders had this year was a better ability to control the interest rates that their buyers were paying. And so they had an affordability advantage over resale this year. And so buyers took that as well, right? Like, you know, if a home builder buys down my mortgage rate and so now I'm paying 5% this year, I'm still paying 5%. Like that's, you know, like that was, that's a pretty good deal for people. And so that I think was another factor that really helped the builders succeed this year. So then next year, you know, we don't, we don't do equities analysis. <laughs> I've proven over and over that I do not <laughs> trade equities, but I do know that the dynamics for inventory are, uh, there's no signal anywhere in the data that we have a flood of inventory coming, like none. So, you know, you can imagine another year of tight inventory. Rates stay in the sevens. You know, you could imagine it inching up a little bit from here. But, you know, there's only 490,000 single family homes on the market right now. And so next year, like you could imagine that it climbs, you know, maybe it's 500,000 or something like that. Maybe if recession hits, you get more, you know, existing inventory climbs a little bit more. And that's sort of the forecast I was expecting for this year is that maybe we'd hit 700,000 homes on the market. And of course, it went the other direction. So then, you know, so then what does that mean for the home building? Well, so that means inventory remains dramatically tight for the existing single family homes. And it means that we can see that consumers respond What's interesting, Michael, is that it's the consumers are responding less to the absolute rate level and more to the rapid change. So the thing that slows people down is the jump from six and a half to seven and a quarter, rather than like being at seven and a quarter. And once they're stable, rates are stable at, at a certain level. Now we go out and buyers are like, okay, this is what it costs my house. And I was talking with a client the other day. It was who said, you know, the buyers have Really short memory. Nobody is, talks about 3% mortgages. They're shopping at seven. And that's what they're doing. And so the, you know, the rapid change is really what people are responding to. And so then you have the risk both sides, right? The downside risk and the upside risk. Like if mortgage rates drop, what you'll see is a spur of demand and inventory will drop. But how much of that is, is maybe pulled forward, right? So if home buyers are of the mindset that rates are going to keep rising, what do they do? They probably try to lock in and buy as quickly as they can, right? So this, I'm assuming there's no one of that too in terms of the reacceleration. If you expect higher rates, right, then you start borrowing now before you get locked into the higher rate. Yes. So you could see, absolutely, we can see the pull forward in the first half of last year. Everybody knew what rates were rising. Everybody knew that if you wanted to sell your house in 2022, you needed to get it done in the first half. And buyers knew that rates were right, like they needed to get it done. And so we literally, the 4th of July, like the first week of July, boom, like new inventory dropped by whatever it was, you know, 10% in a week. And like it just ratcheted down. And so by the end of the year, like you could see that pull forward dramatic. So 
what does that mean for right now? I, like, I don't know that there are any consumers who are like expecting, you know, a huge spike in rates from here. Like they're trying to get it done from here. I do know that there is a certain logic that buyers are using right now, which is, look, I'm buying a house. I'm buying it at 7%. I'm buying a house I can afford, a payment I can afford. Maybe it's more than I wanted to spend per month, but I can afford it. And then, but if rates do fall, this house only gets cheaper from here. And I think there's a lot of that logic that's happening right now. But I don't see right now a pull forward in demand. I do see a delay in demand. I think there's lots of buyers who are like, you know, you know, we have an affordability problem. You know, the difference between rates at 3% and 7% is a big deal. And so there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, wait, look at cheaper again. Yeah. And so I think we probably have the other side of that, you know, is the delay is more, you know, the delayed buyers is more opportunity, more, more likely than, than the, you know, the pull forward of demand, like any extra demand happening now. There's none of that I don't see right now. Yeah, I, I think that's a, we don't do a formal, as, a, as Altos Research, we don't do a formal, you know, analysis on affordability or, or like an index on affordability, that kind of thing. But what I can tell you is that I think that, you know, we have had, you know, we've had surprisingly strong employment numbers. We've had, we have rising income now, and those are, how you, the long-term affordability gets back into shape, you know, and I would, you know, we can look at the long-term price appreciation curve. And if you look at it, if you look at it, it with one window with like a, you know, a 2015 start point, it looks like the pandemic was a, an adjustment out of whack too high. And that you would expect a reversion to mean down if you do a, an earlier time frame, then all of a sudden the pandemic is basically finally recovering the reversion to mean the other way from the great financial crisis in terms of that, the long-term pricing curve. And so like then over time, you know, we grow into affordability with growing salaries and that kind of thing. I think specifically to the gov, the federal government and price wage growth over, you know, greater than, than inflation, for example, is probably marginal impact, like not a dramatic impact on housing. It's one of the things that helps keep housing demand up. And so, but it's a marginal one in my view, rather than like a real dramatic impact. Like it's, there, there are, there's a set of signals that, you know, that we have that like we were the reason that, you know, in retrospect, we had more buyers and sellers this year. And that's like yet another one that fits in that pocket. Talk about things that might be at the margin game changers. I'm a big fan of chaos theory when it comes to investing markets, butterfly effects, things like that. Any thoughts on how student loan repayments might impact housing dynamics at all? Yeah, so. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Are you an alternative investment company looking to expand your reach and share your expertise with a wider audience? Look no further. Podcasting You is here to help you shine in the world of podcasting. At Podcasting You, we specialize in connecting alternative investment companies with top podcasts, providing you with a platform to share your insights, strategies, and success stories with engaged audiences. Don't miss the opportunity to elevate your company's presence in the podcasting sphere. Contact Podcasting You today and let us help you secure valuable podcasts appearances that can take your business to the next level. Visit our website to learn more and take the first step towards podcast guesting success. Go to podcastingu.com today. A little bit. The I think, you know, the people talk about student loans as a, you know, as like this big wave coming and maybe it is out of study uh, that student loans specifically. I do know that people who bought houses during the last handful of years when the when the payments have been held off. You still qualify for your mortgage, <laughs> excuse me, with the payment built in, right? So you're not, they weren't, you're getting approved for a mortgage and then suddenly you're not going to be able to make your mortgage payment because your student loan kicks in, right? Those approvals are, are already in place for the people who bought. So I don't worry about like, you know, a bunch of, 32-year-olds go selling their houses because they have student loan payments ticking in particularly much. So it doesn't worry me. But it does impact another impact on the affordability side. And so you could imagine like we have, you know, we have a, one of the reasons that the housing market has been so strong through the last bunch of years and into 2024, like is the, is the demographic tailwind that we've had because, you know, we have the biggest cohort of people that millennials are in their home buying, their peak earning and home buying years, and they are ready to move into homes. And so they are buying homes. And so like that, but that, so that puts a damper on affordability for that range. And so like it pulls out some of the, you know, maybe it counteracts the amount of the wage increases at the federal government level. Like it's that, it's that level of thing. It does not, it's not a signal to me of a crash because the, all the buyers, already qualified for their existing mortgage with including their payments of student loans, which they haven't been paying. So that just means a they've been building more equity, they've been building more savings. Like they're they're like the homeowners and people and they're already locked in to their ultra low rate for 30 years. So like all of those seem very positive. I see a few people want to ask questions just to those that have requested check your DMs and let's just coordinate before I bring you up. In terms of any kind of historical parallels, is there is there a higher degree of uh, homogeneity? In other words, things kind of moving together when it comes to housing, independent of zip code, as opposed to other cycles, right? Is it more, is there less dispersion relative to history across the country? You know, during the pandemic, I would have said, there, I did say that there is less dispersion, Mike. People were buying at all price points in all geographies, like that boom was everywhere. And it was everywhere because it was such a good deal to be buying a house at a 2% mortgage rate at 3%. Like it was, that boom was all price points, all geographies. Then last year, the slowdown impacted geographies very differently. And it was surprising. And had I been slightly more sensitive, I would have really been able to call this out. But you, like, like I mentioned early, the slowdown happened in the most dramatically in the Western U.S. markets, Boise, Austin, Phoenix, 
Salt Lake, the, like you could see the change happen and you could change it. You, you can measure, quote, slowdown with one of our stats that we track. You know, we're tracking every home for sale in the country every week. And then one of the leading indicators is the percentage of homes on the market that take a price cut. And in, in normal times, air quotes, normal, the about a third take a price cut. Sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's a seller, you know, is wacky, whatever the thing is. But about a third take a price cut. That's normal. So then when the market is hotter, there are like, there's some people that price high and then they get the offers. They don't have to do a price cut. So all of a sudden, the 28%, 25% of the homes take a price cut. So normal 35 and now 25% take a price cut. Then at the peak of the pandemic, the frenzy, the buying frenzy, it's like nationally, 15% of homes, only 15% of homes take a price cut. A third think they're overpriced, but only 15% take a price cut because we're getting multiple offers, we're getting bidding wars, we're getting immediate sales, all of these things, people were buying anything in sight. And so you could really see how hot it was. In places like, you know, Salt Lake City in the like February, March of 21 and 22, we're at like 8% with price reductions because people were gobbling up everything. Then, you know, rates started rising. It really broke off as middle of end of February last year. You can start to see price reductions ticking up faster than the year prior and coming out of the record low. And so then by the fall, some of these markets went from 8% with price reductions to 60% with price reductions. That was a dramatic shift. And anybody who was in Austin last year was like, oh my God, price reductions everywhere. You could really see it. And, and so. That happened. And then at the same time, inventory rose in those markets, right? The sellers had pulled forward and those who didn't get their deal done by June, now it sat on the market. There was no buyers. And so inventory rose and then rate jumped in September. Inventory rose again. And so in by October, you could see another peak in price reductions and in inventory climbing. And so those were the Western US markets. And then meanwhile, though, and this is one of the places where I'd hoped I'd been more sensitive, was that you look around and like, you know, Chicago, New Jersey, and, you know, the Northeast markets, those inventories didn't, they didn't climb at all. So demand definitely slowed, but inventory didn't climb. And, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have, those markets were our outbound migration markets, and it was inbound migration markets to the, you know, South and West. And the migration slowed way down. And so the markets, the destination of those markets slowed way down. But, but the origin markets didn't slow. They slowed, but you know, inventory didn't build. So all of a sudden we had a divergent. We had two bif- like a bifurcated experience at the beginning of the year. But what that also would tell, tell me is that, wow, we are not in a broadly rising inventory environment for the year. Like last year in, in October, I should have been able to see that because I could, you could look at half of the country is not rising in inventory, only the destination migration markets. So, so that's the long answer to your question is that right now we could like, we, we had, uh, we went from during the pandemic, a tightly correlated market to now to have local markets are behaving differently based a, a lot, I think, on the migration patterns, you know, and so therefore affordability and, and choosing to to not go buy, you also had, while you didn't have any investors selling, 
uh, in the last year to speak out. You did have dramatic slowdown. You had slowdown at the at the Wall Street money and, and buying, and you had slowdown at the individual level and buying. And the mid tier of investors, the ones who own you know a hundred homes or you know in that range, those folks kept operating their business and were buying homes during the year and 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 didn't slow down as much. But you could see the demand slow in those markets and. Those investors, they're all buying in the same markets. Like they're all buying in, you know, the, the smile state, you know, the, the Southwest, South, Southeast markets. And so you could see them like they were reacting differently than say at the central and the mid and the Northeast. Yeah. So we're tracking Altos. We track, you know, all single family, all the condos, townhomes, like that. We also track rentals, but we don't track multifamily development, right? So we're not, you know, the fact that there are record levels of apartments in construction right now is not in our data set. But so, but new construction is finally back to the long-term like replacement level. You know, one of the reasons that we have low inventory now is because we underbuilt for a decade. And you know, if you think about that, so that the current levels of of homes that are in construction right now is higher than it has been, but it's not particularly worrisome. In fact, it's probably it's like it's like a relief, right? We're finally getting some inventory there. We could see that that there is a challenge in check, and some of those numbers fall in that. You know, what is what's in construction? Well, like that new home in some of that's just like lot that's you know got a power line to it kind of thing, and. It's not actually a house you can buy. So what we do at Altos is if the house is a new construction and it's ready to move in, we include it in the active inventory, in our active inventory numbers. And But if there's a house that's like, you know, for sale and it's just a rendering of a house and you can't actually, it's not actually a house yet, we actually take those out of our active inventory numbers. We're talking about houses that you can buy right now. And so... We can see there are times, and I expected this to happen more as we came out of the supply chain shocks, that we would see some some new home inventory. It didn't really happen, but but we will track. So we like want to focus on like if I walk into the in the market now, what houses can I buy? And so those are those are that's what the Altos numbers are represent. So then you go like, what could be there? And like I said, like you know we have had. Home builders had a great year because they had some of that pandemic inventory that was starting to get loose that they could sell and they had better control on mortgage rates. So it was a better deal to buy a new home and the selection of existing homes was super tight. So like it was a banner year for home builders. And, and so those there, and so there's nothing in that home builder, the new construction data that looks like. There's a ton of stuff coming. You know, the, uh, I don't like, like financing of apartment buildings. Like I live in San Francisco and there seems to be, there's a ton of shakeout to still happen with, you know, the big apartment building owners who, who don't have 30 year fixed mortgages. There's like a lot of that to go. There's, you know, in the commercial stuff too, there's still a lot of shakeout there too. And those could have, you can imagine if there's big enough crisis on that side that, you know, resale housing market also gets hit and there, there are reverberations through there that, that aren't in the data yet, 
and I don't have an ability to predict, but you can imagine that they could happen. No, but you know, but here's the thing. It's like, and it's funny because as Logan said, we actually have the same conclusion. We get to the, we get to that conclusion differently. But so the common, the conventional wisdom is that we have low inventory this year because rates went up and people are locked into their homes and I'm locked in forever and I can't sell. And, and the way I look at it is that data is actually so that, that implies that the, that I'm locked in. So therefore, when will we get inventory? We would get inventory when rates fall. That's the conventional wisdom. If rates would finally fall again, then we'd get some more inventory. But the data is actually the opposite of that. And this is what I call the Altos rule, which is higher rates equals more inventory, lower rates equals less inventory. And it works like if you walk through the data, we've been, ha- we had, lower inventory every year for the last decade, pretty much every year for the last decade, inventory fall, you look at the January lows lower each year, with the exception of 2018 to 2019. And in 2018, we had rising rates. So rising rates led to rising inventory in 2018 to 2019. Then 2020, we had dramatically falling rates. We had dramatically falling inventory. 22, we had biking rates and spiking inventory. Then in the last year, post November, we had lightly falling rates and we had slightly falling inventory. And right now we are in a point where, where we are in again, rising rates late in the summer. And we can see slight signals of, of inventory climbing or at least not cresting for the fall. So the Altos rule is when do you get more inventory? More inventory is higher rates equals higher inventory. Lower rates is lower inventory, and it's holding costs is the reason. If it costs me more to hold the real estate, I hold less and I resell it more. If its rates are lower, it costs us costs me less to hold real estate, so I hold more and I resell less. So falling rates will spur demand, but not necessarily as much supply. So then, and that therefore, and Logan points out, I think that you know lockdown means I can't sell and. Logan, I think, objects to the hypothesis that I can't. I will sell. I do. I move. I think things happen. You know, so and so we get to the point where that ultimately the conclusion is what gets us to more inventory? Higher mortgage. What gets us to lower inventory? Lower mortgage. So I am, I think one of the, it's the ways to look at it is every policy, every law, every tax policy, essentially in the U.S. Is, has been focused on the homeowner on protecting the money you have, on protecting your home, on keeping you in the home, every policy. And, you know, in places like California, it's even better because your property taxes never go up. Like, and therefore in California, we have had chronic shortage of inventory since Prop 13 kicked in 40, whatever, five years ago, because it's like a really great deal to never sell your home. And so I think that is. It's a 50-year policy. Again, Michael, like to your topic name here, it's again, it's like, I don't blame Airbnb. Like it's a 50-year policy of like, we want Americans to own homes. We want them to make the bulk of their investments in their home. We want to protect that at all costs. And I think we are seeing the, you know, the negative side of that too. Like, like I said, I live in California and, you know, the, one of the big challenges of the state is that because your property taxes never go up, you never sell your home. There's chronically chronic shortage of inventory. Like, you know, like compare it to Texas, similar size Texas town. It's like probably 20% or of inventory per capita. 
you know, in California versus Texas, like it's dramatically fewer. And Texas has a more robust housing market. Texas has a better housing market than California because Texas has high property tax and California has ultra low property taxes. The Texans hate it when I point that out, but it's true. It's like the Texas housing market is better because the Texas property, the holding costs are higher. So you've got to resell and you, therefore, there's more resale. Therefore, the market clearing price is lower and therefore it's more affordable. Like it's a, it is significantly better because Texas property taxes are higher. I think, so there's two, to like to to competing challenges here. So in general, one of the reasons I have not been like I'm not a you know ultra bear on housing. You like even though you can see like home prices were not going to climb. You could you know the I wasn't in a camp that was expecting home price crash. And one of the reasons is because every law we have in the country is to keep people in their homes and to keep those prices up. And like everything we have, we have the mortgage market, like all of its design, tax treatment, all of the things. And that seems unlikely to change. Like the people who vote are the people who already own the home. So that seems like unlikely to change. Even though the California Prop 13 is objectively the worst tax law in the history of tax laws, it is, there's no way to repeal it, right? Because the people who vote are the ones who are getting paid every day. And so, so that is, says to me that we will continue the path of uh, unaffordability to new home buyers. There is, though, there are starting to be some policy level things and, you know, like local level people who are like, we need to be able to figure out housing affordability. So, so, so things like density policies are st- starting to kick in. I haven't seen the 1% tax on investors, but in some ways, it makes sense. I think one of the things I like, you know, like I could understand that as a policy tool that some folks would, some areas would start experimenting with that. I think it is a, you know, a, a like we have this misconception that the big Wall Street money is investing in buying all the homes in the country, which is not true. You know, the investors, like I've said on this call earlier, is that 94% of the real estate investors are like individuals, one or two homes. And, you know, so... If that's who you want to tax in the country, like that would be the recipient of the tax. But that's, that is why, like, but I think to your point, there is some local jurisdictions who are starting to do zoning changes, tax changes, things like that with the service of greater density and affordability. They're starting to recognize that we are over the curve. And so there is indeed some some encouraging green shoots in policy. I think that's a good place to wrap this conversation up. Mike, for those who want to track more of your thoughts and get access to some of your analysis, where would you point to? So you can follow me on Twitter, Mike Simonson on Twitter. Every Monday I do the Altos research data. I do a video on YouTube. It's about 10, 12 minutes long. And I do a thread on Twitter so that you can track every week what's actually happening. And if you have a hypothesis about the direction of housing, you think it's going to crash, you think it, you want to know, you want to confirm your hypothesis, follow that each week and you can actually check your data against your hypothesis every given week. Altosresearch.com. If you need to know and like you need to help buyers and sellers or people understand, investors understand where the housing market is heading right now, you can get Altos data or Altos reports at Altos Research. And the YouTube channel is Altos Research. So all of those places are great. And we talk housing all day long. Appreciate everybody joining and hopefully I'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. 
you should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.